Um, many of you do uh, yearly Bible reading plans. Um, I'm doing one this year, and it's a chronological, or not a chronological, but it's book order. Some people maintain that Job was written um, before the Pentateuch, and so if you're doing a book or a chronological order of reading of Scripture, you would have started in Job. I, however, am doing book order because I think it's a good way to read the Bible. Um, in my time through the Scriptures, one of the concerns that I have both for my own life as I seek to read God's Word and, and, and uh, also for those who uh, are under my charge, so to speak, those who I am responsible for helping or discipling or, or leading, uh, my goal, my desire is that we would be able to see the Bible not just as a collection of historical uh, stories or historical narratives that happened and just be kind of like, well, it's our duty to read the Bible, and here we go. We're going to read the Bible, and we're going to uh, approach the text in a really kind of uh, academic approach. My desire is that you would divorce yourself from that possibility, and that you would, as you read, pray that God, would, the Holy Spirit, would give to you the spirit of wisdom and understanding to see God saying things that aren't just apparently there in the text. As in, it doesn't say right in this chapter, in these readings that we've just heard, that this was a pattern for the future. But that is what my uh, message is today, that these things that happened to Abraham is a pattern that will take place over and over again in the scriptures. And so um, I'd like to read a tweet from a, a gentleman by the name of Darid, uh, David Fairchild. H has anyone heard of David Fairchild? One person. Okay, well, that's. I thought no one would have heard. David Fairchild is very, uh, he's not very famous. He's a, a, an elder out at Mars Hill uh, Church in Seattle. And he is also a uh, seminary professor. And one of the things that he said, um, in, in fact, last night, or uh, yeah, last night in, at uh, one in the morning, which tells you when I was last looking at Twitter, Advice I'd give to emerging preachers. Now, I had already prepared this message before I saw this tweet, so just so you don't think. Uh, to, advice I'd give to emerging preachers, teachers, and students of Scripture. Preachers, teachers, and students. That's all of us. Zoom out from the text until you see the biblical storyline. I think that is the most prescient uh, advice concerning how we are to read the Bible. It is not enough for you to just see a story and, and then say, well, that's really cool. You know, after this, uh, at one point, Abraham kills five kings. Well, that's really cool. Abraham killed a lot of kings, and he defeated a lot of armies. One of the things that we must do when we read the Bible is, is zoom out and see what is God saying through this passage. It, it, you do not approach the books in the, in the scriptures as uh, isolated books outside of the context of where they're located, both as a genre, uh, whether it's historical narrative or prophetic poetry or, or the Psalms or the Gospels or the letters, uh, you, you, the, they both have a genre. They also have a place at a specific time in the old unfolding redemptive plan. That is, God who has been routing, rotting or working his salvation throughout all of time spoke to people who wrote down things that they heard through and by the Spirit, and that is what we have in the, the historical narratives of the Scriptures. And those messages, those accounts, 
both are historically relevant and accurate and morally relevant and accurate. It's not enough for us to just approach the text and say, well, it's great that these things happened. We must ask ourselves, but what is the moral behind this story? And so that's what I want to do um, today with these passages. In this way, I want to look at four different elements. The nature of scripture that uh, focuses on retelling, that is stories that are presented over and over again. Why is that important? How is that uh, a way that the scripture speaks? I want to see how Abraham today in this passage is surveying the land which he then will occupy through his children and how that uh, gives us an idea of the manner in which we are to live. I want to look at this idea of that that uh, Abraham went down to Egypt in the midst of famine, and yet after going down into Egypt, he comes out rich, wealthy, and feasting. And then finally, I want to talk about how this whole message uh, relates to us as as Christians today. That is, how are we to live our lives in light of what God is is saying to us? So, Scripture, as you may may well uh, know, repeats itself over and over again. It is an entirely uh, biblical manner of speaking to repeat the same things over and over. I have this wonderful habit where I, uh, if something exciting happens in my life, I'll tell someone and then two weeks later I'll forget that I've told them and I will tell them in the exact same way. My wife is learning that when I tell stories, I usually, after the second time I tell the story, will then say the exact paragraph in the exact way uh, when I tell the story the next time. I'll have detail after detail. And and if somebody, you know, if I encounter uh, someone who hasn't yet heard, I'll retell it. It's a biblical way of, of living. It's a biblical way of speaking. But this is not just the structure of God's book. It's the structure of God's creation. As we look around uh, today, I when I woke up this morning, uh, I shoveled my uh, walkway to get to my car. And guess what I did yesterday morning? I shoveled my walkway to get to my car. Time has this way of repeating. Yes, it both progresses. We're moving. We're now at 2014, and next year will be 2015, and and eventually, you know, uh, we'll get to the future. But but life has this way of repeating. We both advance in years, and yet the seasons come and go. Though it's been bitterly cold and tons of snow, I have a terrible news uh, piece of information for you. It will snow next year. And don't you, you know, don't you uh, get too excited about that because it'll snow the year after that. Uh, and, and so life has this way of, of both progressing. We grow, we, we mature, and yet we experience the same days in the week and the same seasons in life. And this is how God has <clears throat> created his world. So time progresses, and yet it repeats. And in this way, the Old Covenant scriptures come to us and present stories that both are uh, repeating, but also progressing. They're maturing, they're developing. As we read God's book, we ought to notice how the stories are told and how they're retold. What is the difference this time? After Abraham goes down to Egypt, what happens when Israel goes down to Egypt and so forth? God leads his people forward. He guides them into the place they must go, 
and he brings them back to the land where they should have been. Abraham in, the, in these chapters is both leaving the land that he came from, going to the land that he's supposed to go to, goes down to Egypt, and yet the Lord brings him back. It's, it's as if this happens over and over again with Israel. Israel goes down to Egypt, is in bondage. God delivers them through the Exodus, and yet they sin again and turn away from the Lord. The Lord exiles them into a foreign land, and yet he has mercy and he brings them back. And yet it happens once again, there's another exile. And so this is a pattern in the scripture. And if we are to be serious students of the scripture or students at all, it is imperative that we begin to build a bank of knowledge of the scripture and understand that when we see things happening, uh, they or rehappening, they may be fulfillment or they may be repetition of a theme. And in that moment, God, who gave you a good m mind that can remember things, will speak afresh. He will enlighten you to what he's saying through the development and progression through the repetition of these stories. So I want to look at how, in this passage, Abraham is paving a way, um, <clears throat> and how that... Uh, for us is a message about how we too, as the people of God, are to go into the land and take possession and, and survey and go forth as a, a forerunner or a precursor, if you will, for the next generation. So though Abraham is shown this land in, in this passage, the real possession of the land takes place for his children. In, in the first few verses of this chapter, uh, Genesis 12.1, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Notice the familial relationship around the land. He says, Leave your land, leave your family, leave your people, go to the land which I will show you. Skipping to verse 7, Then the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he calls Abraham out of the land of the of the Chaldeans and brings him to the land of Canaan. And then once God has shown him the land, he then says, not a land, but this land. And so Abraham has left his uh, original location, traveled many, many miles, hundreds of miles to a different land where he had never been. And at that point, God then speaks to him again. And so God is speaking in the midst of Abraham's journey. He's not, this is not a oracle that Abraham has received, and now God is kind of uh, zoomed out away from the picture again, and Abraham's just left on his own. God is in the midst of this story, weaving and telling, leading Abraham, giving him promises, filling him with faith to believe God's word concerning the future and, and the, the offspring or the seed that would come forth from, from Abraham, who is Christ. And this is how God is maturing the story. You can think of a baker who's kneading a dough, and he's started the dough, and he's uh, put it together, and and he's maturing it, and the dough is rising, the yeast is working, and it's coming to maturity, and yet there's still more interaction that God is putting into this story. On his way to see the promised land, Abraham visits a city called Bethel before Jacob does. 
How many of you uh, have ever heard of Jacob's Ladder? It's very common, even in the secular culture, it's a very common phrase. Jacob's Ladder was a, a dream that Jacob had, and when Jacob laid his head against a stone at Bethel, he encountered God there. And what happened? He saw the angels of God ascending and descending. What happens when Jesus is, lead, uh, is gathering his disciples? Jesus says he is the true Bethel, the, the true house of God. Uh, when when Thomas is is um, um, or Nathaniel, sorry, when Nathaniel is is being encountered by the the Christ, he, you know Nathaniel is you are the Son of God, the Holy One of Israel, and and then Jesus basically turns to his disciples and say, you're going to see even more than that. You will see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus is saying, I am the true fulfillment of what Jacob's ladder was all about. The the dream and prophetic experience that Jacob had was pointing forward to a time when heaven and earth would be united through the person of Christ, who brings the kingdom of God, which is the focus of our Sunday school hour. And at this point, Jacob is encountering God. Yet before Jacob was able to encounter God in Bethel, Abraham went there. And that is a profound spiritual reality. Abraham is preparing places of encounter. Abraham makes an altar, establishes the land of and city and region of Bethel as a place where God is to encounter his people, and then in the future, they do encounter him. Later, Genesis 28, you know, is when, when Jacob arrives, has the vision. Abraham sees this land, and then the children obtain it. This is the pattern of things to come in the scripture. For example, Moses leads the Exodus. My, my father alluded to this this morning. Moses leads the Exodus, but Joshua takes them into the land. David purchases the threshing floor of Aruna, but Solomon builds the temple. Elijah raises a boy from the dead, but Elisha's bones, dead Elijah, or dead Elisha raises someone else. Have you ever heard that story? It's a phenomenal story. There's this guy who dies. Elisha's been dead for a long time. He's in a cave uh, in his tomb. They throw this other dead guy in there because that's, I guess, how they're burying people at this moment in time. And as the man falls on Elisha's bones, he comes alive. He's, he's raised from the dead. Now, that is uh, some serious anointing. You know, I mean... That's amazing. But this is a pattern of, of the way that God operates through uh, history. He leads a man or woman to uh, follow him, and they do things and provide a framework and a foundation for the next generation. So uh, if you haven't ever seen the time where Elijah and Elisha are, there's a transition. It's a beautiful passage. Um, if you remember when Jesus is going to the cross, what happens? Peter says, no, Lord, stay. He said, you know, uh, I'll, I won't leave you. I'll never forsake you three times. And this is, again, what has happened already with Elijah and Elisha. When, when Elijah and Elisha are going uh, up at Bethel uh, to, uh, to the end of Elijah's life, the sons of the prophets come to Elisha, who is also a prophet, and they say, don't you know, haven't you heard that your master is going to be taken from you today? And then he says, yeah, yeah, I've already heard it. This happens three times, and three times Elisha asks Elijah, don't leave, don't depart. Uh, it's an amazing story of loyalty. You can almost feel 
the loyalty and devotion and sadness in Elisha's heart as he's encountering this reality that Elijah is leaving because he honors his spiritual father that much. He says to uh, Elijah as his last uh, ask or his last uh, petition, if you will, from Elijah, that a double portion would come on him and that he would walk in, in the power of Elijah. And so this actually comes to pass. And Elijah says, if you're there when I leave, uh, then then this will come true. And and this story is an amazing repetition, and, and it, yet it happens over and over again. As the men of God leave this earth, that is, they either die or mature into uh, the time where they step down from their reign as king or or job as priest, their children, their, their sons, their daughters, receive the mantle that came on them, and they operate in greater power. Uh, we don't have more time to develop this, but if you want to see this again, uh, during the Acts series, Acts chapters 6 and 7, we talked about that in a major way with Stephen uh, being a deacon and then being raised up and doing the same things that uh, his spiritual fathers had done. And so this is a major theme of the scriptures. Um, in this story, there's an amazing thing that happens. How many of you are familiar with uh, the with Israel, the 12 tribes going down to Egypt after Joseph had already been there, that they're sent by their father? Familiar thing? Well, believe it or not, the exact same thing had happened before. There was a famine in the land of Canaan. Abraham was there, and God tells him to go down to Egypt. And when going down, Abraham tells Sarah to lie, knowing that Pharaoh was going to kill him and take his wife. Now, this is a pretty intense scene. Uh, you know, if you talk about the enmity between the the seed of, of man and, and the, the seed of God, or that is the, the wayward nations and God's uh, chosen people, Abraham's basically saying, hey, Sarah, if you don't lie to uh, Pharaoh, this whole promise from God is going to be ruined because uh, I'm going to be dead. And you're going to now be the wife of Pharaoh instead of uh, the wife of the covenant head of, of God's people. And so instead of being robbed in this scenario, Abraham is actually blessed. This happens again with Abraham and Abimelech. And then it happens with Abraham's son and Abimelech's son. And so these stories retell and retell. But Egypt in this scenario, after, after the Pharaoh takes Sarah into his house, he doesn't really touch her, but, uh, you know, God's, God's pestilence and, and plagues come against Egypt. And Pharaoh is like, hey, Abraham, what did you do here? Um, you know, you, you deceived me. And then Abraham said, I knew that you were going to kill me. And Pharaoh doesn't deny that. And then at this point, Pharaoh, because of his guilt and because of his knowledge that this person apparently is being redeemed and covered by heaven, by God, he, Pharaoh gives Abraham money, gold, uh, you know, the, the economy of that day, livestock, sheep, etc. And so take a look at this. Genesis 12, 16 through 18. Um, I, I apparently have 16 and 17 there. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abraham. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. That's like uh, somebody like you know, cheated you out of going on who wants to be a millionaire and then told uh, Regis to like, just give you the whole million right away. It's all yours. 
you know, get out of here, take the money and run kind of thing. Pharaoh is like, get away from me, uh, be blessed. I didn't do anything wrong to you. Uh, be restored and be, be, be blessed. But the Lord afflict, afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, uh, Abraham's wife. Now, this is an amazing story, and yet, amazing as it is, it's going to come uh, again. What Abraham received under Pharaoh's house as well, he also keeps. Genesis twelve twenty. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Now, if you're a student of the scriptures, you're going to see this come about again. Uh, Jacob will retain the wives and his possessions that he had when he was uh, in Laban's care or in Laban's uh, service. And he also plunders Laban's livestock and does this amazing uh, Holy Spirit-led breeding program with the uh, goats. If you've never heard the story, it's phenomenal. What what uh, Jacob does is he takes these reeds or sticks and he strips them uh, to points and makes this area where it's really hard to get to. And he basically takes some of the black or white lambs. I don't remember. It's kind of a confusing story. But he takes the the lambs that are supposed to be his can, uh, over and against the lambs that are supposed to be Laban's. And only the strongest uh, goats or sheep, if you will, uh, who can make it into this area, then uh, he chooses those ones. It's kind of like uh, you know Jacob's uh, selection here. Um, and, and he plunders Laban's household and yet goes away with God's blessing because God's hand was with, with Jacob. Israel goes into Egypt in the famine, and this again happens just like it happened with Abraham. Egypt is uh, severely demonstrated, uh, severely reprimanded by God because they haven't touched Abraham's wife in this scenario, but they've touched God's wife. And if you look at the way that the Ten Commandments and, and the rest of the law are formed, you can read them in a way that it shows forth a, uh, uh, a betrothed and her husband. That is, it follows the exact same pattern uh, in the Old Covenant days of Coventry and um, the establish of a covenant for the uh, taking of a bride. And so Israel plunders the Egyptians when they leave uh, Egypt, just like Abraham did, just like Jacob did when he left Laban. And this is a message for us. This is not just some history that is uh, kind of abstract or it's nice to see these things. This is telling us about what will take place when God's true salvation comes. Christ will come, atone for his people, and will plunder the Egyptians yet again. Those who were in bondage to sin will be brought out and all of the riches, cultural endeavors, art, wisdom, culture, language, trade, technology, all of those will be taken for the kingdom of God from the Gentiles, from those who are wayward, and they will be used in God-honoring, God-exalting ways. That's what it means for Christ to be the true exodus, is he doesn't just pluck us out of darkness, he also redeems our entire lives, our as people, our mental faculties, our abilities, careers, wisdom, goals, money, etc., etc., this is how God plunders the kingdom of darkness. And so, this story is not just about Abraham. This story is about what are we expecting. If this is how God redeems individuals, and the redemption is not 
done and the story is not done, then how is God's salvation going to look when it really shows up? And that's what we know to be the truth with our salvation that we've received from Christ. This is how big this idea of theme, repetition, and promise is in the scriptures. In fact, it's such an important thing to understand about the plunder of Egyptian of the Egyptians to see that it was actually part of the covenant at the beginning. I remember the first time I, I talked with somebody about the plunder of the Egyptians, that is, the fact that, that Israel took gold with them, which later was used specifically in, in the rest of the Pentateuch as the very gold which would adorn God's temple. Uh, I, I received a lot of extreme opposition to that idea, and I said, I understand that you, you don't, uh, you know, you may have never heard that told to you as part of the covenant, but it was really actually part of God's initial promise to Abraham. Genesis 15 through, uh, sorry, Genesis 15, 13 through 14 uh, this is two chapters after this point in time. God is continuing to make covenant with Abraham, continuing to speak to Abraham. Abraham's continuing to respond in faith toward God. It says in verse 13, Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But... I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. That was part of God's initial promise to Abraham. I will make you a great nation, but along the way there's going to be some stuff that happens. There's going to be some messiness. There's going to be some slavery. Israel's going to turn away from me, etc., etc. But when I bring them out of Egypt, I will accomplish a great salvation, both by cursing Egypt and blessing the people of God. Both of those being integral parts, two sides of the same coin of God's initial promise to Abraham. And this is over and over again happening. And so this is a, a prime message, the moral of the story, if you will, for us today. When we read these sorts of passages in the Old Covenant is to derive some sort of application for our lives. It's not enough to just know and be able to retell these stories my desire for you as you read the word is both that the Holy Spirit would help you understand these things and would impress upon your heart the realities which Christ has fulfilled in the new covenant, which these things were prophetic promises or pointers to, but would also create in you a sense of understanding of how to live your life before God. That is, you and I are, are men or, and or women uh, who live before Yahweh, just as Abraham did. We live this side of, of the covenant. Uh, Christ has already come. But you and I have a responsibility to live our lives in wisdom. And it is by the, by the scripture that we can obtain uh, insights for living. Abraham's told to walk over all the land because it will then be given. Now, this is kind of an amazing thing to me. Abraham first has to walk over the region and then God will give it. And, and so Genesis 13, 15 through 17, for all the land that you see, I will give to you. So first Abraham has to see the land. This is what I was saying earlier. He's like a surveyor. How many have ever seen a surveyor planning a bridge or a road? They get out there and they, they have these amazingly beautiful uh, uh, 
three-point systems of levels, and they have these things called sextants, which allow them to see the rise or run over a huge distance and know how tall something is or the grade of a road. It's amazing math and, and geometry that these people accomplish. I actually had a friend growing up. His father was a surveyor, and I talked to him a little bit about you know how difficult it was. He went to school for four years to learn how to do this. This is an amazing skill uh, that we have with us till, still to this day. Abraham is like a spiritual surveyor. He's walking over the land. He's listening to God's voice. God said to Abraham, I will show you this land. I will tell you where to go. Abraham, in faith, follows God's voice, sees the land, and then it says, uh, for all the land that you will see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. If Abraham had not obeyed God's voice, the land would never have been given to Israel. Abraham is a precursor. He's a surveyor for the promises of God. Verse 16 and 17, again, this is part of the covenant. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land. For what reason? For I will give it to you. The giving comes after the walking through the length and the breadth of the land. And this is the moral for us. Whatever you work for, you keep. Abraham worked for things, he kept them. He went through dangerous situations, and God yet spared his hand, spared, uh, had, had a provision over him. Whatever Abraham worked for, he kept. But the very ground that Abraham walked on, didn't work for, became his children's inheritance. That is the revelation that comes from reading these types of stories in this manner. That is, you and I, we walk before God. We have a call of God on our life to live before him in righteousness, to follow his word, to uh, live before him as men who are wise, not wasting our days. And what we work for, we keep. That is, we acquire understanding from the Lord. The Lord leads us in the path of righteousness. His word being a light to our feet allows us to walk through life. But the very areas that we touch. Maybe we don't champion them, but they become our children's inheritance. And that is the prime message for us as young people. Most of us in this church haven't had children yet. Um, actually, most of us in this church aren't even married, uh, but you will eventually probably get married unless you decide not to, um, and you will eventually have children. And it is, it is up to you to live your life in wisdom before God and decide how you are going to pursue God's kingdom in such a way that your children obtain things that you could only see. That is, the hope that you have for God to intervene with the sick or the downtrodden. We talked earlier in our announcements about uh, compassion issues, social justice issues, if you will. Those things which we long to see dismantled in our day, the evil that is rampant in culture, society, etc., the things that we long to see demolished and see Christ be glorified in, uh, those things which we could only hope for will be our children's destiny if we walk through the land that God leads us to and, and live faithfully to his promise. Pursuing after God's kingdom, therefore, in the light of this pattern that that God uh, that God uh, operates with His people in, the the moral here is that if we understand this is how God works with His people, then we should live our lives pursuing after His kingdom.
and not anything else. His kingdom, the pursuit of his kingdom, is the most important inheritance that we can leave to our natural and spiritual children. It is not enough for you or I to merely be conversant with the things of the faith. They must become inward realities. That, that is, they must, the word must become flesh in our lives. Not, not that we are God incarnate. What I'm saying is that the, the word, the scriptural word, must become in, incarnated in our life pattern. That is, you and I are to live in the way that God uh, shows forth in his law, and that is the way that the next generation takes ground, is through our prophetic living. And so my prayer for us today is that God would allow us to live in such wisdom. And not only to see this story, but see its fulfillment completely through the person and work of Jesus Christ. As I said earlier, Jesus is the true exodus. The, the exodus which Israel experienced in the past, which God had prophesied to Abraham beforehand, that was only a mere precursor or prophetic sign to the exodus that would be accomplished by the souls uh, of those who were redeemed by Christ. That is, you and I have been brought out of darkness, Colossians 1 says, into the kingdom of the Son of, of God's love. That is, God's uh, Son, Jesus Christ, his kingdom is the place where you and I reside now, and it was not always this way. You and I, before we were redeemed by God, we were away in darkness, and it is by God's grace that he has accomplished this wonderful salvation through his Son, and not only that, brought us into the midst of it. And so it's not enough for you to see these things in the scriptures and think, oh, Abraham did this, I'm, I can do it as well. Or David slayed Goliath, and I need to rise up and slay the giants in my life. That's not enough. What is, what is enough is that you see that Christ himself has accomplished these, these things for you as well. And that by faith in his work, you can do the same in your life. He will give you the grace in order to live in such a way that you walk on land which your children possess. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We do ask, God, that you would give us the freedom of your wonderful exodus that you accomplished through Christ. We do pray that you would quicken our hearts to, to faith, that we would obey your word, and that we would live in such a way as to see all of these things come to pass. God, we pray that you would deliver us from the idols of entertainment and frivolity and laziness. Lord, that you would make us into men and women who are ready to take your word in their hands like a sword and the faith of your promises like a shield and take land in our culture. We do ask, Lord, that you would give us the ability to be people of mercy and that we would, like Abraham, have abundant provision so that we could share with those who are in need. Lord, we ask you that you would give us minds to understand your word as we read it this year. And Lord, give us faith to see the fulfillment that take, took place through Christ. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.